0: The War Nomads podcast bonus episode. Hear amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories and experience of world travel. Hi, on this episode we're catching up with travel TV show host Scott Wilson and not only chat about his popular travel series Departures but look outside the world of sets and studios and explore travel and his love of travel.
1: Departures has screened on networks in more than 50 countries including the Outdoor Life Network in Canada, Nat Geo, TVB in Hong Kong and, of course, on Netflix, from epic landscapes and unforgettable culture to the often trying times that come with international travel. Departures chronicles the friendships, successes and disappointments that befell Scott and his co-host.
0: Yeah, the show features high school friends Scott, as we've mentioned, obviously, and Justin, travelling to various locations around the world, accompanied by cameraman Andre. We kicked off our chat by asking Scott, how did he develop his love of travel? (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh, I think it started really early on, uh, for, for myself. Um, when I was five years old, um, my parents took, uh, took the family, myself and my brother, um, across Canada, um, in a fold down trailer. And, uh, we went all the way to British Columbia and back, uh, kind of from the Toronto area where, where I grew up. And so that was, that was a long journey for, for a five-year-old sitting, uh, in the back of a non-air-conditioned car, all the way camping, all the way out, um, and I think that was kind of the, the the seed that was planted for for a love of travel and an understanding of of vast distance and uh, and really appreciating the road trip. Um, and uh, and from there i mean every summer both my parents were were teachers and so we had summers off together and uh and we spent the majority of them traveling through the us through canada to the east coast to the west coast and uh and around north america and i think that was a really good building block for for a young guy to to understand his own country first and kind of his own surroundings before then starting to branch out and see the rest of the world as well
1: i know it's it's a big ask to think back that far but At that time, do you remember thinking... What the most exotic destination imaginable might have been for you at that time?
2: Not really. I mean, I did have a bit of a fascination um, with Europe and what Europe looked like. My mother was born in Europe, and uh, I was always hearing stories. I never really met either of my grandfathers, but they both fought in the Second World War, and I had a fascination and a a real keen interest in the Second World War. So, uh, trying to picture what those battlefields would have looked like and what those parts of Europe looked like was uh, was really um, you know, rain true and, and kind of top of my head when when I was younger, for sure.
0: And then you morphed into having your own TV show. How does that? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's that's the ultimate. Growing up with a, a passion for travel, and then uh, then being able to to do it and do it in a TV show that was global. I mean, it was Netflix.
2: Yeah, and I mean it it uh, it was a lot of steps in between, obviously, and and going to. To film school and uh, we had uh, myself and my business partner who was the DOP um, Andre um, you know we met in film school became business partners uh, and had a chance to work on uh, another travel show at the time and that really again it was a, a catalyst uh, fire was uh, reignited for for travel I started to travel outside of North America for the first time and I mean I was 20 21 years old at that point only then starting to travel outside of North America and my first trip was to uh, Zimbabwe Africa so it was you know jumping in with both feet for sure and um, and and was completely blown away and the, the culture shock and all the experience the animals everything um, and and the process of of making a TV show and Andre and I uh, with a very naive process thought, geez, you know, we can do this. and We can probably do this better. (laughs) And so we, uh, we did, we, we kind of emptied our bank accounts, bought some equipment, uh, flew to New Zealand. Uh, We had a friend there who kind of put us up for a while and, and shot somewhat aimlessly over, Four or five weeks, and and came home trying to sift through all this footage, wondering how it was going to look, what we were going to do with it, and uh, and being our, our own worst critics, uh, constantly, you know, building an edit, tearing it down, going back again, and and kind of saying, geez, you know, who the heck is going to watch this? And finally, uh, with the push of some friends and family, we just sent a package out to. Uh, a Canadian network uh, here in Toronto, um, Outdoor Life Network, and, and sent it to them and said, you know, it's, it's now or never. We kind of have to see what happens. Um, and we sent it out, and the very next day we got a phone call and they said, you know, we love it. We need you to come in for a meeting.
1: So what was it you were trying to achieve? What do you think it was that was the lightning in the bottle? It Was it the way you were doing the storytelling or was it just the places that you'd been to? Uh,
2: a little of both. I think there was there was a lot of ingredients that helped, helped to connect with, with a lot of viewers. Um, I think there was a very um, realistic approach. I think uh, if a couple of schmucks like us could do it, the feeling was that, you know, Anybody could do it uh, because there was certainly nothing special about us. We weren't, you know, privileged with lots of money. We weren't uh, famous by any stretch. You know, we were just two people with a passion for travel that wanted to go out there and, and see the world. And, um, you know, despite my childhood interest with with Europe, and while I still have an interest in Europe, we, we did... Um, very consciously avoid uh, doing Europe in, in a lot of these episodes for for departures because we just felt like there was already, most people had a pretty good understanding, preconceived notion of of what Paris looks like. It's in so many films. It's in, you know, it's just in everyday life so much that I think everyone has kind of a, a pretty good understanding, pretty good idea of what it looks like. So when it came to places like Madagascar, when it came to places like Ascension Island, uh, Libya, North Korea, it was like, well, these are the places that if we have no idea what they look like, then maybe that's a good indication that, you know, most people don't know what they look like. And those are the ones that we need to go out there and, and see and do, you know. And I think going back to the dynamic and that sort of approachability, uh, the way that that we did things um, and, and that we kind of wore our heart on our sleeve as, as much as we could. Um, the whole idea from the show from the get go was, you know, uh, the show that we had originally been working on, uh, was very magazine format and it seemed a little forced and a little flawed at times. Um, and this was, was more about, Hey, you know, everyone who travels knows that it, it isn't all smiles and sunshine. You get ex, you know, extremely tired, you get sick, you get scared, you get into uh, predicaments that you're not sure how you got there or how you're going to get out of. And so we wanted to, to show all those ups and those downs uh, and to be as, as true and realistic to the travel process as we could.
0: Speaking of how did you get there, getting into North Korea to film an episode for departures, how did you achieve that?
2: <laughs> persistence um uh, one of our our producers um when we had spoken about it um i mean this this came to fruition in in the third season of departure so uh we had talked about it near the end of our first season and we we kind of tried for it in season two and it, it never came to fruition um there was uh, a gentleman um who actually appears in the episode as well. Uh, Nick, who runs uh, a company, Corio Tours, out of um, Beijing. He himself is a British expat. And uh, and he's been living in Beijing for decades and decades now and going into North Korea and forging a wonderful relationships with the people there uh, for, I think, at least two decades now. Um, and so he seemed to be the you know, the guy to, to really make it happen for us. There aren't many people who, who can make it happen and he seemed to be one of the few. And so, as you can imagine, he's approached all the time by uh, news agencies and outlets all over the world trying to gain access to North Korea. And a lot of them have, uh, um, you know, maybe an agenda already set out for it. And he has no interest in doing anything but trying to... Uh, do good for everyone involved and he knows that you know there are there are a lot of things happening within the country that um, you know uh, are are highlighted often and and aren't uh, obviously uh, the the best of things to be uh, doing um, but for for us and our approach, what we were showing off is, look, we just want to go in and experience it as it is, you know, fly on the wall. And uh, as we have with, you know, other countries we had been to. And so with the persistence and, and emailing him, calling him, and finally kind of sending him some some other episodes uh, that we had done of, you know, what at the time were referred to as access of evil countries like Libya to kind of say, hey, look, we're just going in and trying to, you know, talk with the people see what's going on and, and give it a very uh, real uh, approach. And and I think he, he understood that. He said, yeah, you know what? This could be good for for everyone. And so finally, uh, we got on the phone with him. We had some discussions. And before we knew it, we were in Beijing and, and getting ready to, to board a flight to Pyongyang.
1: How do you feel? I mean, you're te- telling it like it is and the... the- TV series is fantastic. But how do you feel, you know, does anybody ever say, well, you shouldn't be doing that? You shouldn't be helping regimes like that by showing that it's... Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know that uh, clips that we've put on our our YouTube channel and everything of, uh, of, of the show, of that episode, um, certainly have uh, probably just as much, if not more, uh, comments than, than any other. And, and we knew that it was going to be a hot button item. Um, but our job wasn't to go in and report on the bad things that are going on there. And I I think there's nobody that can deny that there are very bad things going on there. Um, but they're, they are pretty well published and our job again, wasn't to go in and report. Our job wasn't to go in and, uh, and either support, deny what's going on. Any of those aspects. It was, it was literally to to go in uh, and and try to see what what normal life is like, as as normal as it could be in there. Um, and I think. You know, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, you're just showing off, you know, everything that they they wanted to show you. Uh, And they're absolutely right. I mean, there was no way for us to go in uh, without risking life and limb and and legally crossing a border and trying to, uh, you know, do an expose on showing things that uh, that most people don't get to see, et cetera, et cetera. We knew going in that there was only going to be certain things they were going to allow us to see. And I, I feel like the way we filmed it, the way we told the story, and the way uh, our editors, who were phenomenal in putting the story together, uh, told the story, if you watch it, you, you don't really have to read between too many lines to understand what's going on there, and that they are, they are certainly um, controlling exactly what we're showing off. and uh, you know with a camera it's it's hard not to uh, to do that i mean they're, they're not going to they're not going to allow you into uh, uh, military emplacements and stuff like that you know so so again, our job was we were given a window of seven days inside the country we're going to show you exactly what we saw and we're going to try to uh, you know give a voice to the people and the experiences that that we had there so
1: It's a funny thing, you know, Like, especially with, you know, regimes of any type, especially at the totalitarian end, shining a light on them. And it's that you can't control reading between the lines. It's impossible to do, isn't it? If you're a good storyteller, then that's where it's at.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, we could have not gone, but I think that, you know, like it or not it's creating even on our youtube channel even you know the comments below those clips that we put on it's creating discussion and you know what if that that's got to at least lead to some good things if it's it's bring it's coming on people's radar people are talking about it and sure people have rightfully uh, some pretty strong opinions on north korea and what's going on there etc cetera, etc cetera. but um you know we were given the opportunity to to go and visit and i think you know that may be a once in a lifetime kind of thing and we we had to take it just like we did with, with many other places we went.
1: Well, some of the other places as well. You mentioned Libya. I mean, that must have been uh, an experience, too.
2: It was absolutely, yeah. And I mean, that was just pre-revolution uh, Libya. You know, kind of before the whole, um, yeah. uh, like before all of those uh, uh, countries started to, to revolt, like with uh, Egypt, etc. Um, so it was it was during the the Gaddafi era. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was a, a very unique experience as well. But what's funny is I remember being in Morocco uh, the weeks leading up to that. And we were kind of fumbling and fighting to get our, uh, our visa to, to enter Libya while in Morocco. And the last few days in Morocco, in, in Casablanca especially, it was just, it's a, for us, my impression of it, it was, it was a big city. It was a dirty city. And we were a bit, you know, travel weary at that point. Everywhere we went, we were getting, uh, you know, hassled for, it, it's, you know, the the haggling culture in Morocco is very aggressive. And uh, we were just, we were a little, we we're getting to the edge of of getting kind of burnt out with the, the whole experience there. And I remember getting on the plane uh, in Casablanca and uh, the last, you know, uh, officers that were there kind of checking passports and all this sort of stuff. He says in Arabic to the other guy, such and such, he's like, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Tripoli, you know, looking at him saying like, as if to say this guy's going to Tripoli, can you believe it? And he kind of like swings the, the the boarding pass back at my chest and he's like, bon voyage! And thinking to <laughs> myself like, what, what does this guy know that I don't know? And yet we land, we land in, in Tripoli a couple of hours later and uh, immediately kind of hit the streets with the camera and started walking around and it was like night and day. It was like uh, everyone just came out with a smile and they were like, oh, please come in my shop. And, you know, you'd go in and they would just sit down and offer you tea and they they could care less about selling you anything. They were just like, where are you from? Why are you here? You know, and it was, <laughs> they just seemed so pleased that someone had actually come from another place to to visit and show interest in their country. And I mean, that's, we've we've had that experience in a lot of places. It was just that we didn't necessarily expect it there and it was really a breath of fresh air. So it was, it was a wonderful experience and, and it's tough when, when things change for very dramatic uh, or in in a very dramatic fashion, like they have in Libya, Uh, when you meet people there and you, you do forge friendships and, and relationships with people and, uh, And then stuff like that happens and very serious things are happening there. Andre and I talk about it often. We think about some of those people that we met and and wondering, you know, are they okay? What's happened to them? And that's, that's tough. You know, in a day and an age where we're so well connected, there still are a lot of places on earth like that where... Uh, when you leave north korea obviously another one when we left those people and new friends behind you kind of give them a hug or shake hands and and you kind of remind yourself geez i'm probably never going to see these people again because you know facebook uh really isn't an option in in some of these places you know and, and you wonder you lose touch with people and yeah it's it's tough i mean it's it's part of the the greater travel experience too i suppose
1: the uh, customs agent at the airport in Casablanca didn't mm. bear a remarkable resemblance to Humphrey Bogart by any chance to he? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, he didn't. But you know, what's funny, what's funny is we, we kept thinking about, you know, the whole, uh, like the, the movie as well. And it kind of, you know, everyone it's, it's, everyone wants to leave. Everyone's trying to get out. And we were joking about that at the end, that it's like, you know, yeah, we kind of share the same sentiment. We were just ready to get the hell out of Castle Blanc. And we're like, yeah, yeah, they were onto something. I mean, I know different things were going on at that time, but hey, you know, we we get it. We get it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 60 countries and three seasons of departures.
0: Mm. Then you decided that you needed to see the other 70%
2: of the world yes. which is the oceans and you launched
0: the yeah. tv series descending
2: yeah it was uh it was actually during our second season uh of departures where uh we had our first taste of of scuba diving in uh, in brazil we had the opportunity kind of presented itself and we thought well we've got to do it and uh and none of us had ever been before none of us had ever been diving before and um and we, we loved the experience. I remember uh, Andre and I talking about it, you know, the night before. And I was a bit, I was a bit hesitant. I was thinking, geez, you know, can I can I fake a cold so that I don't have to dive? Can I kind of weasel my way out of this in one way, shape, or form? Uh, and in the end, you know, kind of going forward because I'd always had a problem even duck diving in in a pool or in the lakes here in the summer. I could get so far and I 'd get that pressure uh, sensation in my ear you know i couldn 't go and i couldn't uh, equalize um, and so I had a very patient instructor who was with me that day, that first dive, and uh, kind of walked me through it as as best he could and I had that aha moment where I kind of figured out okay here 's how you you know you equalize and clear your ears and as soon as that was done, it was like a a veil was lifted off my eyes, and all of a sudden I started to focus on this underwater world around me. And it absolutely blew me away. And uh, I, I've probably said it before, but um, it was it was truly like having access to another planet all of a sudden, just instantly. And uh, and we came up from that dive and andre and i were were just dumbfounded and we i think we knew at that point that that was going to be the next passion project and uh it, it took another year and we were you know happily involved in another year of, of departures but when uh, when we decided to kind of call it quits or at least put pause on on departures um andre and i were, were already kind of fleshing out the idea of descending which we knew we wanted to have a dive show that went beyond the means of, of some of the other dive documentaries or dive shows that we had seen. Um, Similarly to departures, we wanted it to be approachable. We didn't want it to be something like a, uh, you know, a a blue planet BBC level. I mean, of course, from a cinema uh, cinematography standpoint, that would be wonderful. Um, But just a lot of the documentaries, these blue chip documentaries that we would watch underwater um, were, were putting, making me feel like as a newbie diver, there was no way I could get to that stuff. It was Dr. Robert Ballard going for the Titanic or, or things of this nature. This was, Hey, Again, if if we can do it, you can do it. Let's go see. And it was salt water, fresh water, cold water, salt water, our, our warm water, uh, like the tropics, Iceland. We wanted to show um, as much as we could of of the diving, the underwater world, the diving world that was open to us and, and to the rest of the world.
0: Tell us what happened when you were capturing footage in Indonesia in the in the small plane.
2: <laughs> uh, I. It all happened in a flash we were in um, yeah an ultralight and Andre had gone up uh, with the pilot first to get some aerial footage and come back and uh, and said you know Scott you've always had this this uh, this passion for for everything aviation why don't you go up for a flight and we'll kind of make it part of the story and, you know your last sort of look at Raja Ampat this remote part of Indonesia and uh, it didn't take much coaxing for me the pilot himself um, had a lot of fun took a lot of liberties we had noticed you know he's a little bit of a hot shot hot dogging around in this thing uh and I think it uh, it got the better of him when I went up with him and we kind of flying around and, and having a look at uh, at some of the the remote parts there of, of Raja Ampat and then we were we were cooking along quite close to the water very very low and we blew over top of um a pot of dugongs like manatees and uh because we were so low we went past them so quickly. uh, We both noticed them and he yanked back on the stick to gain altitude uh, so we could get a better look at them. Uh, And obviously anyone who knows anything about aviation um, with that, uh, you know, increased angle of attack, you're bleeding off the airspeed, and so the plane is uh, is slowing down, uh, losing airspeed dramatically. Then, when we saw them off the to the right side of the plane, he banked hard to the right, and I think basically what happened is he stalled that that wing, that outer wing, and uh, we started plummeting back to earth. So my guess is, from maybe four or five hundred feet, um, we were coming back down towards the ocean. Straight, like absolute nosedive, and in my head, I'm thinking this guy knows what he's doing. He's a hot dog. He's going to just kind of swoop out and pull out at the last minute. And it was uh, it was literally the last millisecond that my brain kind of processed. There's no way, like, there's no way we're getting out of this. And then, bam! Instantly, we we hit the water. Um, I remember being underwater and thinking, okay, well, I'm alive. So I need to get out of here and reaching for the, the little release point of the, the five-point harness in the middle of my chest and grabbing it and it coming perfectly undone and, and, you know, swimming right out of the harness perfect. It was the kind of thing that afterwards I was thinking we could have landed safely 200 times in a row and I would have fumbled with it looking directly at it. And some miraculous reason, uh, you know, I was able to do it. You know, with my eyes in salt water after hitting the the water and and swam out, and uh, yeah, so it was it was over in an instant. And I keep saying, like my my brother, uh, who's the field producer on on that shoot, uh, they had seen the plane go down. I, I I know it was a thousand times worse for him than it was for me because he didn't know the result. You know, I just it happened in an instant for me, and and we were out, and I clambered on top of a, a pontoon that broke off of the wreckage, and and we sat there waiting for rescue. You know, for him, there was a good hour or so where they were looking for us. They they had no idea if we were alive or, or dead. So,
0: wow. Yeah, and this was for descending. Uh, kind of ironic, really. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we I, we had actually decided on the name before this happened. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, what are you up to now?
2: Now, I mean, with with these kind of travels, they. Uh, they become part of you and, and a part of your life and for us a part of our career too. So, I mean, certainly, uh, on the, the personal side of things, uh, with family, I still travel, um, uh, on my own, but for, for work, uh, for a career as a documentary filmmaker, we're still actively traveling. So Andre, uh, had a, a wonderful project that he completed a little over a year ago for National Geographic called Over the Horizon. And, uh, in some markets, I believe it's called, uh, my Pacific quest and, uh, He and Ellis Emmett, uh, the Kiwi who was with us in Descending, um, took a a sailboat around to islands of the South Pacific that you can basically only get to if you have uh, a boat of your own. No airport, no other kind of means of getting there. Uh, And so it was this, you know, 100 plus day odyssey kind of uh, going around to these islands. Um, That garnered Andre his his first Emmy nomination, uh, which was wonderful. Um, And then, he and I have uh, have been working on a, a project which I can't get into. Too much detail yet, but for uh, Discovery U.S. Um, with the Cousteau family, uh, back underwater again, uh, again like travel uh, and like many aspects of uh, of my life with motorcycles and airplanes, uh, they become a part of you and and you just can't let them go. So diving, <laughs> diving and filming and traveling are are all recurring themes for us now. So there's a, a project that we're putting finishing touches on uh, there um, uh, that we're looking forward to. We're doing it because truly it is a passion you know we're not we're not getting rich off it but we're doing what we what we love what we've always loved and i I think you know what we're always going to continue to love endless moments uh and endless memories that i'm going to have for for the rest of my life that that are are truly unique and and really special
0: so great to chat with him a tv star really well he is a tv star he's a tv star (laughs) yeah um,
1: talk about being in the right place at the right time though
0: yeah uh, and the show is hysterical to watch Particularly, uh, Justin, who knows no boundaries. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> by the way, departures won a Gemini Award, which was handed out by the Academy of. Canadian cinema and television, and it recognises obviously achievements of Canada's television industry. A Bit like the Emmys, Phil, or the BAFTAs. Fair enough.
1: So I guess
0: we should mention
1: our own award, oh, too, which really? I'm pretty happy about. The World Nomads podcast has been uh, named as an honoree in the 2019 Webby Awards, which is pretty fantastic. I'm pretty pleased with that. The best branded podcast or segment for 2019. And well the, done, and Kim.
0: The Webby's are things on the net. Yes. You can get the World Nomads podcast on iTunes or download the Google Podcast app. Subscribe, rate and share and please tell your friends about us.
1: Next week, big episode, we're going to reveal the winner of our travel writing scholarship to Portugal.
0: Yes, see you then. Bye. Amazing Nomads. Be inspired.